You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing the Washington Insider Murder. Hello, hello, and welcome back. I hope that you all had an awesome Halloween. I know this year might have been a little different. And honestly, okay, I'm a bit pissed right now because I have been waiting for Halloween to fall on a Saturday for years. And it finally did. And COVID. So now I have to wait till like freaking... 2026 before it falls on a Saturday again. Oh my gosh. How can a year go by so quickly and yet so slowly at the same time? Oh yeah. COVID. It's like some sick riddle or something. Anyways, on to more somewhat more controllable things. Um, It's the first week of November. When you're listening to this, it's going to be election day and let's just all take in some deep breaths. (laughs) It's going to be all right, guys. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay. Um, But it also means that uh, we are going to start covering Unsolved Mystery Cases again as Netflix recently released six new episodes in their second volume. I must admit that I am actually watching these right along with you. So I've only watched this episode that I'm going to talk to you about. I have heard some conflicting reviews, as I think I talked about last week. Um, Some people are really, really loving the second volume, and others are seriously disappointed with it. And I am going to share my opinion about volume two, but as I've only watched one episode, um, I'm only going to do it after I've covered all of the cases. But for now, I am still excited to learn about these cases and learn about the people involved. I'm also even more excited about the impact that having such a mass viewing of these episodes, partly due to COVID, um, are going to help people tune into these episodes. And I can only imagine what it's going to do for these cases. So in the last volume, as you may remember, a lot of tips came into unsolved.com and they ended up helping some of the cases, moving them along. Like none of them have gotten solved so far, but I think that it kind of helped things move along. I'm specifically um, Alonzo Brooks's case. And so I think it's only a matter of time before someone with information comes forward or something comes of these episodes. And I'm really excited about learning about that, seeing the cases um, move forward, and hopefully getting justice for these people. Also, some people have gotten in contact with me this past week and they've asked, how can they help the podcast grow? And first off, I want to appreciate your desire to help this podcast expand. And honestly, in order to help me, it's super, super simple. It's really fast and it's really cheap, like literally zero dollars. 
You could write a review on iTunes. You could give it like five stars on iTunes. You can share the podcast or the posts on Instagram and on your Facebook. You can follow me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. And you can just keep listening and engaging. So those are like the best ways that you can help me right now in growing the podcast. So I so appreciate you all for being here. I know that I say that every week and you're probably getting tired of it, but it really is true. Thank you guys so much from the bottom of my heart for being here. And and honestly, I'm just going to keep saying it because I want you all to remember how much you guys mean to me. So yeah. All right. Enough jibber jabber. On to the case. The episode opens with a construction loader driving over tons, literally tons and tons of trash in a landfill. And already I can tell this is not a good sign because the landfills and obviously unsolved mysteries are never going to be a good mix. This particular landfill, Cherry Island Landfill, is located in Wilmington, Delaware. And I just think that's a really cute name for a really ugly place, Cherry Island Landfill. (laughs) Sounds like it'd be like a fun place, but it's a landfill, so not so much. Uh, We first meet with Michael Lawson, a retired detective with the Wilmington Police Department. He is walking us through the landfill and he tells us that being in this place brings back a lot of memories of December 31st, 2010. Way to end a year. Seriously. He says it's not every day he gets a call about a body being found in a landfill. In his career, he dealt with a lot of robberies, a lot of like assaults, a lot of burglaries in people's homes, and even some homicides, but nothing ever came close to the discovery that he made this day. As he approached the body, he observed that it was an older white male. There were no obvious signs of injury, so no stab wounds or gunshot wounds, no puncture wounds. Uh, The man was dressed in a hoodie and a white shirt and black pants so besides the hoodie he's basically wearing like formal business attire at this point they show an evidence photo and there is a section of the photo that is highlighted and apparently you can see the body amongst the debris but I'll tell you what I zoomed in on this picture like so many times and I still can't see anything so There's just so much garbage and trash that I'm honestly shocked that this body was ever located at all. Like, I literally know where to look in the photo and I still can't see it. I have been listening um, to another podcast and I'm going to give them a shout out because they're seriously hilarious. Um, It's called Let's Go to Court. They're great. So if you haven't listened to them, you can go over there. They have a lot of swearing, but I, if you're okay with that, that's fine. Um, anyway, they were just covering a case about a serial killer who may have disposed of his victims in a landfill, and those women have never been found either, and I can totally understand why. It's literally impossible to decipher a body in all of the debris, and honestly, it's just heartbreaking. But it also makes this even more astonishing that someone did spot him when they did. So even though this is an awfully sad start to an episode, and shocker, it's not really going to get any better as we progress, at least he was found and his family could have that semblance of closure instead of just thinking that he skipped town or, you know, that he's being held captive somewhere. 
and at the very least they have a place that they can lay him to rest and they can visit him whenever they can. So anyways, long tangent, let's get back to the story. As Detective Lawson got closer to the man, he noticed a distinct ring on the man's finger. It was unlike any ring that he'd ever seen before. It was a 1966 West Point ring. And holy cow, we have been talking about West Point a lot lately. I think we've had two episodes in the last few weeks that had some sort of connection with West Point. Uh, Moral of the story, uh, don't attend West Point. Lawson could tell by this ring that this man was a person of notoriety, and Lawson was not at all wrong. The death of this man became national news as it turns out that he was a former White House aide, a man by the name of John Wheeler. John is his legal name. However, everyone who knows him, like including his wife and his co-workers, refer to him as Jack throughout the episode, so I'm going to be doing the same. Detectives were baffled. There were no immediate suspects, no like obvious enemies that arose to the forefront of this investigation. Steve Volk is an investigative journalist who has done a lot of research regarding Jack. And so he will be with us throughout the episode, just like letting us, giving us little tidbits of information and insights that he has come across during his investigation. He tells us that when you first hear about this case, you think, a body in a landfill. This is certainly no ordinary murder. It sounds like something the mob would do. This person was never intended to be found, and it's shocking that they did find him. Steve tells us that what initially drew his interest in this case was, of course, the notoriety of the person involved and the conspiracy around it, but as he did his research, he found himself growing attached to Jack because Jack had lived a rich and fascinating life. Jack had served in the military during the Vietnam War. He lost many good friends and men during his service, and it was because of this love for his military brothers and his love for all the men who had lost their lives fighting, he came home and immediately got to work, figuring out a way to honor these fallen soldiers. He ended up accomplishing this by heavily assisting in the construction of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial located in D.C., Jack was devoted to causes that were for the benefit of the country as a whole. Jan, one of the founders of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, says that Jack was an exceptional man. He had attended many prestigious colleges and universities. He had fought with honor in the Vietnam War. He was extremely bright, but he was also a humble and kind man. And you don't normally get that combination. So just another, like, you know how I'm always saying, like, the people that we talk about in these cases are always so great. And it's just so unfortunate that like these terrible things take them away from us too soon. Jan says that Jack was an incredibly involved chairman of the board in the construction of the Veterans Memorial. He asks, how would the memorial have happened without him? Then he answers his own question. He says, it wouldn't have happened. It would not have happened. In 2004, Michael Wynn hired Jack to be an aide during the Bush administration. He loved and appreciated Jack's work ethic and his innovative mind. Wynn says of Jack, Jack thought outside the box before there was a box. Jack was an advocate of destigmatizing mental health to all, but especially those within the military. There is a clip of him on the Today Show explaining, um, 
that we need to expand our definition of who is wounded. It's not just people killed or harmed by a ballistic injury. It's got, it has to include people who suffer after the war as well. He accomplished so much, which is a victory in and of itself, but he did it all while also suffering a mental illness. Jack had bipolar disorder, which is marked by bouts of frenetic activity. The highs are high, which may have helped to give him the energy that he needed to get all the amazing things that he did get done, but people who suffer with the disorder have the lowest of lows. Jack could be impulsive and overly emotional at times. Volk, the investigative journalist, says there's no doubt his disorder propelled him forward, but it also simultaneously held him back. And what he did get done is all that more impressive because it was so hard for him. Now we meet Jack's wife, Catherine. She says that Jack was passionate about everything that he did, whether it was official government work in D.C. or assisting a neighbor who was running for a councilman position. He treated them both with equal heart and equal energy. Catherine and Jack were married for 13 years. They met and married each other later on in life and had a loving, blended family together. Jack had twins from a previous marriage, and Catherine had two daughters. Jack treated Catherine's children as his own. We speak quite frequently with Meriwether, who is one of Catherine's daughters, and she attests to the fact that Jack was a funny, cheesy, and sweet guy. The interview that takes place with Catherine, Jack's widow, is incredibly sad and heartbreaking as I notice in the interview she jumps back and forth between the present tense and the past tense when speaking of her late husband. Even though Jack has been dead for almost a decade, we can tell by this jumping in and out of different tenses, her language, that this is all still very raw and emotional for her. She speaks of him fondly as he's still alive, and you'll see what I mean as we get closer, or as we get further into the episode. Catherine says, quote, being married to Jack means you're never, it's, it's never dull. It's full of unexpected things, which I like. She continues that what first attracted her to Jack is that he was a soldier who liked ballet, and she just couldn't believe how lucky she was to have met Jack. She says, I loved him with all of my heart. I really did. So here we have a man who seems on paper and from the accounts that we've heard is a great man, a man who is devoted to his country and to serving people, a man who has who was a loving husband to his wife and an amazing father, both to his own biological children and the children of his beloved wife. Who would want to cause such harm to a person like that? Jan, Jack's longtime friend, received a call when he was on his way to Washington that Jack had apparently been murdered. And Jan says that he'll never be the same. It was a sudden shock to all those who knew him, and there was no indication as to why anybody would want to murder him. Meriwether says it is incredibly hard to wrap her head around the death of her stepfather. The location of the body is a place where someone might never be found, and she agrees with what I spoke about earlier about what a blessing it is that he was found and that this is something that they are very grateful for, that at least in his location, that's something that they never have to worry about. But there are still many things to wonder about regarding this case. 
Catherine says Jack's daughter called her up and said, Jack's dead. Catherine says she was shocked. She could not believe what she was hearing. She says, it didn't seem possible that the world could go on without him. That can't be true. How do you have a world without Jack? And this makes me sob whenever I think about this interview because I feel like we've all been there. We all have that person or had that person who is our whole world and it just doesn't make sense that the world could possibly continue on without their presence actively involved within it. Catherine and her daughter Meriwether went to the police station to see his body and Jack's body was apparently covered with a sheet from the chest down and she says that this is just as well as she learned later from the medical examiner's report that he had been pretty well beaten up and tossed around. Many believe that the location of the disposal site pointed to a professional hit job. Jack was a prominent man after all. He worked as an assistant to the Secretary of the Air Force for a time, and his network of contacts within the government was vast. Many believed it was possible that someone had targeted Jack for a murder-for-hire type plot. What we know is that at the time of Jack's death, he was working as a consultant for the Mitre Corporation, which is, which is a defense contracting firm. They specialize in artificial intelligence, military satellites, and Jack was currently working in the area of cybersecurity. He was dealing with many of the issues that we are hearing about right now in present day, you know, Russia interfering with our elections, Russian and China, Russia and China supposedly hacking into our power grid. That's the stuff that Wheeler was working on. The problem, though, is that even though Jack was dealing with all these high profile things and similarly working with high profile people, none of this can directly account for the cause of his actual murder. Nothing seems to point that way at all. Now we're back at the landfill, and we need to pause for a moment and acknowledge all of the freaking birds. Seriously, there are so many seagulls there. I cannot imagine having to work and gather evidence at this landfill, not only because sorting through mountains and mountains of garbage seems absolutely horrendous, but also because you would not be able to take one single step without running into one of these like thousands of seagulls flying around everywhere. They're literally everywhere. You need to watch it and just like be in awe of like how many freaking seagulls there are at this place. And and these seagulls are like used to people. They're not even startled when people like are trying to walk by. They just like stay there and they're like, what? I'm not going to move. The police department had a very incredulous task ahead of them. How on earth were they going to go through all of the trash surrounding Jack Wheeler and accurately determine which things were important pieces of evidence and what were literally just pieces of trash? Plus, whatever imperative evidence you do end up finding, it's obviously been contaminated with waste. You don't want to discount anything, but you also don't want to bag everything. They also had to determine which injuries were caused by the actual murder and which were caused by simply being in the landfill. It also appears that Jack had been at the landfill for what appears to be seven to eight hours before he was discovered. They were in search of other articles of clothing or perhaps a cell phone, but they were not able to find any of these things. After identifying Jack and learning that he had a home in Newcastle City, just a mere six miles away from the landfill, but nonetheless a different jurisdiction, um, the lead detective calls the other, like Newcastle City, to give them a heads up. And wouldn't you know that the Newcastle Police Department was currently en route 
to Jack's new castle property because there had apparently been a burglary there. Then this investigation turned into something much more than just finding a body in a landfill. Robert Dill was a temporary neighbor of Jack and Catherine at their Newcastle property. It was Jack and Catherine's second home, so they didn't live there full time. They would come and go, and they hired Robert to be somewhat of a caretaker of their home. He would check in on it from time to time, just make sure that like everything's good. Robert says that Jack was fascinating and that he really liked him. Um, He tells us about one morning that he was standing outside speaking with another neighbor when he noticed that Jack's second floor rear window was open. This didn't seem right to him, and being the caretaker of the house, he decided to investigate. Robert says when he came in, the storm door was closed, but the main door was ajar. He walked inside and saw the turmoil. The house appeared to have been ransacked. There was a potted plant that had been thrown, broken dishes in the sink, spices tossed from the cabinets onto the floor, along with with comet cleaning powder all over the floor as well. Jack's West Point sword and shield were also on the floor. And there was a bare footprint in the comet dust. Barefoot. That's interesting. So immediately the neighbor assumed it's a burglary and he of course calls the police but I have some doubts about this robbery theory I don't think burglars break into houses in their bare feet that seems a bit bizarre to me also I think it sounds more like vandals than someone actually trying to steal anything because I don't know why a robber would come in and break dishes in the sink and throw spices all over the ground it looks to me like it was no burglar at all or Maybe it was someone staging a robbery scene that had never actually seen one before. They don't really get too much into it in the episode, but these are my first impressions of the scene. Similarly, a few days before Jack's murder, someone had let off smoke bombs at a house under construction. No one was hurt, but police found a cell phone, and it turns out that the phone belonged to Jack. I don't know if the phone was discovered there before or after Jack was found. It's unclear from the episode. So you have to wonder how or if these events are at all connected. FBI got involved in this case very fast due to Jack having a past relationship with the Pentagon. Many were worried that his death could be related to that. Special Agent Scott Duffy was assigned to the case. And even though Duffy is retired, he looks incredibly tired. I don't know if he's still working as a consultant or whatever, or if it's just years of seeing the things that he's seen, but somebody please get that man a Mai Tai and a Maui vacation stat. And maybe some of those little cucumbers that you put on your eyes while you're at it. He looks haggard. Poor man, he needs to sleep. You can tell that he has seen some crap in his day. Police were working to reconstruct the last few days of Jack's life, and surprisingly, even though this is an unsolved case, there is like a plethora of surveillance video that he can be seen on. Unfortunately, the contents of these video clips just make this case even more confusing, if you can believe it. Catherine says that the last time she saw him, he had, he had been in DC. He had come to have Christmas Eve and Christmas day with his family in New York city. That's like their home base. Meriwether said that every year they had dinner together as a family on Christmas day. And Jack seemed to be in good spirits. 
The next day, around 7 a.m., Jack told his wife that he would have to go back to D.C. to work. Catherine was not about that. She was super annoyed. She wanted to go to the movies with their grandchildren. It was like a tradition that they had. She was not happy that he had decided to leave, but apparently that was Jack. He was always working and he always had 15 things going on at once. Special Agent Duffy said that we know when he was on the train from New York City, he had his phone with him. They were able to corroborate with coworkers that they had indeed spoken with him that day. Duffy says it's incredibly helpful that Jack lived by the phone because it makes it easier to establish a timeline of Jack's whereabouts that day. On December 28th, Jack works in DC for one day. Later that day, phone records show that at some point Jack left DC and he went to his elegant home in Newcastle, right at the edge of a historic park. It's that night that the house across the street has the whole smoke bomb incident. The next day, Catherine attempted to reach Jack and she had not been able to reach him, which was incredibly unusual because as we know, Jack lives by his phone. Catherine had never not been able to reach Jack that way. On December 29th, Jack contacted MITRE by email to inform them that his house had been burglarized and that certain items had gone missing. Items that would allow Jack to access uh, MITRE, like his badge, his key fob, his cell phone, briefcase, and I think a couple of other things. It is interesting that Jack doesn't tell the police or Kathy about the break-in. It's honestly a little bit weird. Also, where um, before police were really able to trace Jack and his whereabouts, once his cell phone is stolen, they lose that ability to establish a really great timeline of Jack's movements because they can't use his cell phone anymore. They were able to get some witness statements, which are not always accurate as we know, and that surveillance footage. It is through this footage that we know that on December 29th at 6 p.m., Jack visits his local pharmacy. This is his pharmacy, so the pharmacists know him quite well, so I think we can trust this witness account. But he wasn't there to pick up a prescription. He was there in search of a ride to Wilmington. So I guess there were a few people in the pharmacy at the time, and they offered to give Jack a ride. Jack wanted to get to Wilmington so that he could pick up his car at the Amtrak station there. The next thing we know is around 6.42, he shows up in a parking garage attempting to find his car. But he's in the wrong parking garage. His car was actually in a garage several blocks away from the garage that he was wandering around in. Apparently, as incredible and as amazing that Jack was, he was directionally dysfunctional. And I, I get that. Um, I have a feeling that it's because Jack had so much on his plate, so much on his mind that he didn't have the brain capacity to remember all the minute details like where he parked. His brain was filled with super important things like, oh, I don't know, cybersecurity and hackings of China and Russia. Let's cut him some slack here. Apparently, he he would often park his car and not be able to find it. He was constantly misplacing it, um, so much so, in fact, that there are multiple occasions when he would just give up trying to find it and just take a cab home. <laughs> they have footage from the parking garage, and it is seriously haunting, guys. If you have the opportunity to watch it, I would totally watch it. He is so frazzled and so distressed He's agitated. He has one shoe off and one shoe in his other hand. And 
he seems to be afraid because he keeps looking out of doorways before he steps out of them and like poking his head out and like looking from side to side. I feel so bad for him. The attendant working that night attempts to help him and asks, all right, sir, let's see your parking ticket and I can tell you if you're in the right place. And he says that he can't show her because the parking ticket was in his briefcase and his briefcase was stolen. She asks, who stole your briefcase? Where were you when it was stolen? And she says, Jack just keeps repeating, my briefcase was stolen. It was stolen. My briefcase was stolen. It was stolen. What happened in those 40 minutes when Jack seems to be calm in the pharmacy, nonchalantly asking for a ride, and this footage where he seems to be super stressed out and disoriented? And why is one shoe off? Meriwether says when she sees Jack on the footage, she can barely recognize her stepfather. He seems so frustrated and scared. Catherine says that Jack losing his phone and being so stressed out about that, coupled with his bipolar disorder, may have been the reason why he was acting that way, but she's not sure. Catherine says he was very diligent about taking his pills, but bipolar disorder can be mysterious and unpredictable, so who's to really say whether Jack was suffering from some sort of a mental break? Volk says it's absolutely possible that Jack was attacked within that 40-minute window, exacerbating the situation even further because being physically assaulted may account for why his shoe is off. But again, this is all conjecture because we really just don't know. The next time Jack is seen on camera is 20 hours later, on December 30th. He is seen on camera in the basement of Nemours Building, which is an office building in downtown Wilmington. Evidence is collected that shows that Jack spent the night and most of the day in this office building, but no one is really sure why. The episode doesn't really explain why he would have selected this particular building. Um, We don't know if it was just if he had a connection with it or was it just a location of opportunity. He isn't able to get to his car and now he just seems like a guy hunkering down and hiding possibly from some unknown entity. Maybe he went in there to collect his thoughts and figure out what his next move was going to be. At some point, there was a witness who claims he had asked them for a ride to Pennsylvania so that he could take the Amtrak to New York City. His movements and requests just don't really add up or make any sense. At 8.30 p.m., Jack is seen leaving the basement of the Nemours building, but He's dressed a little differently. He's wearing a huge dark hoodie, which is very unusual for the typically suited Jack Wheeler. He had apparently never worn a hoodie before and didn't even own one. So this is very out of character for him. Um, Some people assume that he took the hoodie from one of the lockers in the Nemours buildings. The last footage we have of Jack, it's 841. He is walking in front of Hotel DuPont, which is like a ritzy hotel, and he has his hoodie on and the hood is like over his head, covering himself. It's unsure if he was doing this because it was cold, because like it's Delaware on December 30th, um, or if he was attempting to possibly conceal his identity. When Catherine couldn't reach him, she was uncertain of what to do. She knew something was wrong, but she didn't allow herself to believe something terrible had happened, and certainly not what had actually happened to him. She couldn't even fathom it. On December 31st, Mike Grabowski, a commercial trash truck driver, went to work. He says it started out as a typical cold December day. He clocked out 
and as he was pulling onto the freeway, his dispatch called him to have him come back to the landfill um, because they had found a body and he needed to come back. Mike said it certainly jolted him to see Jack's body there on top of the land, all the trash like that. He says it was kind of freaky, but then he says it was freaky. He asked his coworkers to please cover up Jack's body until the police could arrive to allow him some decency, which I thought was really nice and thoughtful of him. Duffy says that this investigation has been particularly difficult because they know Jack was not killed at that landfill, but no crime scene of where he was actually killed has ever been discovered. Eventually, after searching the trash that had surrounded Jack's body, it was determined that the trash had come from the city of Newark, and this case was turned over to the Newark PD. Newark PD was able to zero the evidence to a few dumpsters in the area, and they took a forensic team to examine those dumpsters. They swabbed them, and one in particular came back with a partial DNA match to Jack Wheeler. Uh, To Catherine's knowledge, she has no idea why Jack would have been in Newark. He had no connection to anyone or anything there. So this is another big twist in the case. And I should have probably also mentioned that this is Newark, Delaware, not Newark, New Jersey. How did he end up in a dumpster in Newark? How did he get 14 miles south of Wilmington? At 11 p.m., a witness said he shared a cab with a man who looked a lot like Jack who wanted to get to Newark. It is frustrating to not be able to come up with one definitive answer. Mike gives us a tour of eight-yarder and six-yarder dumpsters, and at at first I'm like, why are we even here? But then he tells us that it is actually really common for people to climb inside of these dumpsters to sleep and also to find some warmth in the winter months. Mike says that he has personally witnessed several people who jump out of the top of the dumpster or they scramble out the little door on the side when they notice that he has put the forks to jump to dump the garbage into his truck. Within the field, they refer to these people as haulers because they pop out and holler, whoa, 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 let me out, let me out. But Mike also states that sometimes he can hear these haulers and other times he can't. Is it possible that in Jack's bizarre pilgrimage to get home, he stopped at a dumpster for the night to get warmth or possibly to evade whoever might have been after him, either real or in his mind, and then not have been able to get the attention of the driver and had passed away that way? It is a theory that investigators have definitely explored. Meriwether says that this is a preposterous idea due to the ME's report's conclusion that Jack was murdered. I paused the frames and read what I could of the Emmy report, and it looks like his autopsy was done the very day that he was found. The Emmy reports that his body was still warm to the touch and that rigor mortis had not yet set in fully, which I researched and apparently colder temperatures slow down the onset of rigor mortis, and sometimes like they can do it up to like three days. It makes it like super inaccurate. When he is found, he still only has one freaking shoe on, which means that he was walking around with one shoe on the entire night, which is still seriously, this is going to be the thing that bothers me this episode. There's always something. Like, remember with Edgar Allan Poe, I could not get over the clothes that he was wearing that didn't belong to him? The shoe. The shoe is the thing that is going to bug me in this case. Anyway, Jack also had his gold ring on his finger 
a Rolex on his wrist, and cash in his pockets. So I don't think robbery was the main priority to ever caused him any harm. Also, side note, I have always known, obviously, I've always known that Rolexes are expensive watches, but I never realized just how expensive until I looked it up. Uh, the low-end ones cost at the very minimum six grand, but they can go up to like upwards of half a million dollars crazy. I'd be terrified to wear something around that on my wrist. I'm probably late to the game in learning this, but hey, you guys got to see me learn that. Lucky you. (laughs) The Emmy reports that the degree to which he was beaten was severe and is not consistent with the fall from a dumpster and subsequently into a landfill. Emmy reports that there was aspiration of blood, contusions, fractured ribs, lung collapse, hemorrhages in his brain, a neck injury, his lips were swollen, he has lacerations to his mouth. Basically, all of the places that you would expect injuries when you were being pummeled and you fall to your knees in an effort to protect yourself. The ME says that the cause of death is blunt force trauma. What doesn't make sense is why someone would want to beat him up so severely. Was it targeted? That's possible. Who would target him? That would create a lot of speculation. Was he simply in the wrong place at the wrong time? Perhaps. Then the episode takes us down this weird road of Jack being possibly the one who might have set off the smoke bombs in the house that was being built across the street. People apparently say that Jack was a passionate guy and he didn't want the house to be built because it was going to like block his view of the historic park and also because it was a new build in an area that's supposed to be historic. Apparently he and Catherine had been very vocal of their disdain of the build, but I think that to to assume that he went out into the night to set off smoke bombs like a 14-year-old teenager to get some sort of revenge I don't know. I just find that completely ludicrous. They say that maybe when Jack was setting off the smoke bombs, he accidentally left his phone at the construction site and then became terrified when he returned home and he realized what his mistake was. And then the rest is history. But did anybody else think that this theory is seriously so dumb? I'm just not buying it. If him losing the phone at the house is a ruse, then who stole the briefcase? The miter badge, the key fob. I mean, I guess we can say that the bipolar disorder might have made him so emotional and illogical that he decided to go and set off smoke bombs, but why didn't he just go back and get his phone? Some people think that when he realized where he had left the phone, he came home and flew into a rage throwing dishes and throwing comment and throwing spices, but I don't know. It doesn't really make any sense. Would he really be so scared of leaving his phone there that he'd go on the run? Maybe he thought the police were looking after him, and that's why he was so paranoid at the parking garage. I don't know. Whatever it is, it still doesn't explain the murder, so I don't even know why they wasted time on this little detour. But if you think it's significant, please enlighten me. If you think that I'm missing something, I want to know. So let me know in the comments on our Instagram post at Unsolved. Most people are under the impression that it was probably not just a random street mugger because street muggers typically just leave a body where it drops. They don't risk being seen and they don't risk leaving evidence by loading it into a dumpster and not even taking the money and the Rolex, particularly if they've taken the time to hide their victim. 
Apparently, the family put up a very sizable reward for anyone who may have had knowledge or tips to help with the investigation, and not a single person came forward. Catherine and Meriwether believe that it's because whoever committed the act had already been paid, insinuating their belief that Jack was killed in a murder-for-hire plot. They also say that they don't really know what happened to Jack, and they wish that they did, and they really want to find out. Everyone has enemies. He has security clearance. His briefcase was stolen. But where is the briefcase? This is another sign that points to this not being a random murder. This seems thought out and well-planned. My personal belief is that if we find the briefcase, I think we'll find the killer. On April 29th, 2011, Jack was buried in the Veterans Memorial. This man deserves justice, as his wife Catherine puts it. Jack's whole life was devoted to service and service to his country. His whole life was focused on a way to be useful, and that's all he wanted. He was a soldier, he was always a soldier, and he was good. She says, I've never known anybody so good. Oh, how I miss him. Somebody out there knows something, something more important than they'll ever comprehend, and they need to come forward and share what they know. Delaware Crime Stoppers is offering a cash reward for information leading to the arrest of subject or subjects responsible for the death of John Wheeler. Uh, please contact Delaware Crime Stoppers at 1-800-TIP-3333 or go to DelawareCrimeStoppers.com or Unsolved.com. And that's the episode, guys. I feel like I have so many questions. With every new discovery, I only developed more and more questions. For example... Why didn't Jack ever ask an employee like the pharmacist that he knew really well or the parking garage attendant to use a phone to call Catherine and ask her for help or to have somebody come and get him? He had so many resources and connections. Why didn't he use any of them? What happened to him in that 40-minute window when he was happy and content at the pharmacy and then disheveled and shoeless at the parking garage? Why was he in Newark? How come detectives were able to locate the cell phone but never the briefcase? Was the theft of those items related to his death at all? Was the burglary related to his death? Here are a few theories floating around the ether. Some of them were discussed in the episode, but some of them were not really discussed at length. So hopefully you will learn something that you didn't know by simply watching the episode on its own. Scenario 1. Wheeler was killed by an outside agency. When Wheeler's body was discovered and the circumstances of his death confirmed, many presumed that he had been assassinated by an enemy nation or a rival of his employer. This would seem to be the most logical scenario given Wheeler's employment history and status as a Washington, D.C. insider with a high-level security clearance. At the time of his death, Wheeler was employed by MITRE Corporation's cybersecurity firm, but he was also an authority on chemical and biological war- where- I can't talk. Biological warfare. Proponents of this theory point to the fact that Wheeler's briefcase had never been recovered and that he contacted his employer about the theft but not the police, an action he would presumably avoid if he were fearful that classified information had been stolen from his home. Wheeler's erratic behavior before his death and his avoiding his home and cabs in favor of hitchhiking and traveling on foot could be taken as signs that he feared he was being stalked and that the thieves were hunting him to cover their tracks. However, while this theory seems plausible on the surface, it does not 
It does nothing to explain some of the odder aspects of the case, such as why Jack Wheeler's phone was found at the arson site across the street from his home. It's also believed that a professional assassin would have shot Wheeler from a distance rather than beating him to death physically. I mean, I guess if you're a hitman, that'd be smarter, less evidence. Scenario number two is Wheeler was killed by the federal government. Some conspiracy theorists have connected Wheeler's death to various theories regarding government corruption in Washington, D.C. Their belief is that Wheeler was on the verge of revealing something big and that he might have been killed to keep him quiet. Given Wheeler's connections at the Pentagon and his background in biological warfare and cybersecurity, it's possible that he could have been the Edward Snowden before Edward Snowden had he discovered something illegal. While this theory might explain Wheeler going into hiding and the disappearance of his briefcase, it explains little else regarding the odd circumstances of his death. With his background and long list of connections, it seems unlikely that there wouldn't be someone Wheeler could have turned to if he were about to become a whistleblower and was in fear for his life. Additionally, it seems unlikely that Wheeler would have gone to ground without making some kind of effort to make sure his wife and children were protected if he really thought that he was being targeted by assassins as a result of a long-term investigation into government corruption. There's also the question of why he would have been beaten to death when it would have been so much easier to stage a home invasion gone wrong or some other scenario in which Wheeler could have been shot to death. Scenario number three is Wheeler was killed by the local government. Another theory, theory which is favored by Wheeler's wife is that Wheeler was killed by a hitman in the employ of corrupt politicians in Newcastle, Delaware, whom Wheeler was close to exposing days before his death. Wheeler had filed a lawsuit attempting to halt the construction of a house across the street from his home in Newcastle. Wheeler's contention was that it was illegal to use that land, which had been part of the historic military site Battery Park, for residential purposes. He also considered it a sacrilege to the memory of the soldiers to whom the park was dedicated to. His wife claimed that he had become he had been independently investigating the construction project and might have stumbled across a secret worth killing for as part of this investigation. Some also theorized that Wheeler might have been responsible for the arson attempt on the construction site where his phone was found days after his death. However, the firebombs used in the incident were later determined to be simple smoke bombs used by exterminators for flushing out rodents. While Jack Wheeler was not a munitions expert, it still seems unlikely he would make such a rudimentary mistake given how meticulous he was in all the other aspects of his work in life. This also assumes that Wheeler would ever consider committing a crime. The police have largely dismissed this theory, yet they have no explanation for how Wheeler's phone ended up being at the arson site. Maybe he was being framed. Scenario 4, Wheeler was killed by muggers. One of the more disturbing aspects of Wheeler's case was that he apparently had some kind of medical episode during the two days he was wandering the streets. Wheeler had bipolar disorder and was on medication for this condition, but he was usually good about taking his medicine. It is possible, however, that the stress of his briefcase and phone disappearing may have triggered a manic episode. The video footage and eyewitness accounts of encounters with Wheeler during his two days in downtown Wilmington would seem to confirm that something had happened to him, with some theorizing that he may have suffered a stroke or developed amnesia as a result of a traumatic encounter. However it happened, some theorize um, that 
A confused Wheeler may have been mugged on the streets of Wilmington or Newark and suffered a heart attack as a result of the stress that this encounter would have brought up. This resulted in the panicked criminals dumping Wheeler's body in a dumpster and running for it before their crime was reported. While this theory would explain Wheeler's behavior and injuries and the results of his autopsy, it does have one major flaw. Wheeler's body still had money, jewelry, and again, that expensive watch, when it was found in the Wilmington landfill. There's also the fact that muggers who kill their victims usually don't bother with hiding the body, much less transporting it 15 miles out of their way to a dumpster in another city. Scenario number five, Wheeler was accidentally crushed to death in a dumpster. Another theory is that Wheeler, either confused or making an effort to throw off his pursuers, sought shelter in a dumpster in Newark. His body was later crushed by the compactor of the garbage truck that picked up the dumpster, resulting in the blunt force trauma that caused his death. This would also explain the heart attack that Wheeler suffered, as he could have had it either the night of December 30th and been left too weak to leave the dumpster when it was picked up, or had it while his body was being crushed by the compactor. The chief problem with this theory is that few believe Wheeler would have sought shelter in a garbage dumpster, even if he were afraid of being watched on the street after spending most of his first night on the run in the basement of an office building. There is also some question as to whether or not the injuries Wheeler suffered could have been inflicted by a trash compactor at all and how he came to be in Newark in the first place. As the medical examiner believed, the extent and the nature of the injuries were more in line with a severe beating than being crushed. Whatever the truth behind Jack Wheeler's death, it cannot be denied that Unsolved Mysteries Volume 2 chose an incredibly intriguing case with which to open its new season. I don't know, guys. What do you think? Let me know what you make of it in the comments of the post that I made and posted to our Instagram at Mysteries Still Unsolved. I would love to hear your theories and opinions on this case. And don't forget to join me next week when together we'll discover... Did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?